In its quest to provide an open forum for discussion of controversial issues, this station allows hosts and their guests to express themselves without any significant censorship. You're advised that any views expressed by the hosts or their guests are not necessarily the views of Tuggy Entertainment or its partners. It's time to get happy. Harvesting happiness with Lisa Cypress Gaiman. A fresh talk radio approach promoting happiness because happiness is a choice. And happiness can be cultivated and harvested. Hence the name of the show, Harvesting Happiness. Lisa's going to shine a light on the well-being and global human flourishing by presenting a diverse and proactive collection of the greatest thinkers and doers who have devoted their lives to creating a better world in which to live. And as a filmmaker, psychologist, author, professor, and motivational speaker specializing in the field of happiness, Lisa Cypress-Kamen is widely recognized as an expert in the field. In the show, she'll also focus on military families, service personnel returning with PTSD, traumatic brain injury, and civilian life reintegration issues. So let's get to it. Harvesting Happiness on Togedan.com. And now, here's your host, Lisa Cypress-Kamen. Good morning, good afternoon, good evening, wherever you are. Welcome to Harvesting Happiness Talk Radio. I'm here to speak with you today as I do each and every week about happiness, well-being, and human flourishing. Authentic happiness is not selfish, egotistical, or narcissistic. In fact, the achievement of a happy life is not only good for us, but for those around us. Sustainable happiness is important because it not only elevates our own well-being locally, but also contributes to the collective flourishing of humanity on a global level. In short, happiness matters, happiness is from the heart, and this show is all about the heart. And today's show is a special one. It is July 4th, 2012, and we are celebrating American Independence Day. But I think, really, the subject uh, of today's show is about reflecting on the importance of freedom, the freedom and liberties that we have as Americans, and in the choices that we make to pursue our passion and a life that gives us a sense of joy and fulfillment. And one of the things I always love to encourage people to do is to encourage that them to really delve into that which makes their hearts sing. What is it that makes you happy? What is it that truly satisfies your soul? And our guest today is someone extremely impressive who has done just that. Dr. Benjamin Labrat is a native of Southern California who learned to swim before he could walk. His love of water led him to working on sport and commercial fishing boats and on the floating marine science laboratory vessel. He, along with his sister and others, began Floating Doctors, whose mission is to reduce the present and future burden of disease in the developing world and to promote improvements in healthcare delivery worldwide. This man is truly an impressive man. Today we are speaking with him from, I believe it is Panama, but he will clue us in on, on exactly where he is in the world and I'm, I just want to make sure that we've got a good connection so we've been having a little bit of uh, difficulties and that is the nature of live radio or even recorded radio but um, oh wonderful we have Dr. Benjamin Lebrat. welcome Dr. Lebrat. 
Ah, good morning, Lisa. Oh, thanks for being with us. You are in Panama today? Uh, I am, uh, and uh, I was listening to uh, your introduction. One People always ask me, so, like, what do you miss about being uh, back in the States? And to be honest, there's not much that I kind of really miss, uh, but I do really miss high-speed internet. <laughs> Yes, and you know, but it, it's not even that reliable. Even where I live, high-speed internet. I'm, you know, I'm I'm way out by uh, the Ventura County line. For those of you that know Southern California, uh, and I'm kind of in the boonies, so I don't even think our high-speed internet is high-speed. There's a field body in that yeah, right along there. <laughs> yeah. So uh, from one shore to another, um, I, I really want to focus for a moment on this concept of freedom and how important it is to exercise the gift, and it is a gift. Uh, the greatest gift that anyone can be given. Mostly we never know uh, or never notice when we have it, but we, but we usually sure notice when it's taken away. Um, it's just you know, one of those things that's easy to take for granted until its absence is felt. And uh, uh, since uh, this is you know, July 4th, and we're talking about uh, you know, celebrating the existence of America and American freedom, I thought I'd share a little bit about what kind of what freedom kind of means to me and to us. You know, we see a lot of, you know, we tend to see a lot of situations and encounter a lot of situations um, where freedom is not, uh, you know, where your freedom is curtailed or where the freedom of our patients are significantly curtailed. And uh, I think what I've come, especially looking at a lot of the volunteers and the people from around the world, especially the young people that have come out to work with us, I've decided that what freedom really is, and this is why they always say freedom, horrible, horrible freedom, is that freedom is the, freedom is the right to execute right to accept the consequences for all of your behaviors and all of your decisions, both the good consequences and the negative consequences. It's the autonomy in your own life that allows you the freedom to take the consequences of your decisions. When your freedom is taken away, either willingly or unwillingly, that freedom you know, for your own decisions to affect your life starts to get removed. So that's one thing you know, I always do enjoy, you know, kind of about life on the water. You know, when we're full, you know, 500 miles offshore, you know, we're free, very free, but it also means we're free to take all the consequences of our decisions, which means our safety is no longer the responsibility of a government agency that's supposed to protect us or rules or laws, but suddenly our safety and our survival, you know, becomes our own responsibility, which means suddenly our decisions take on enormous importance. But that sense, you know, the absolute freedom, you know, of knowing that every single decision you make uh, has a huge bearing on, your, you know, your continued success and survival is both terrifying and exciting at the same time. Indeed, and it makes me think of the concept of 911. You know, in, in America and, uh, and other, you know, more fully developed countries, 911, you're calling somewhere out there for emergency or disaster relief. And in your case, with floating doctors, the 911 is something very, very different in, in, the, in the care and treatment that you give and also in the caring of one another and securing your safety. That is for sure. You know, for us, it tends not to be a, what's that? Someone's in distress? Quick, 
to the vehicle that's going to take us six blocks down the street, uh, you know, and then straight to, you know, fully equipped and functional hospital. You know, for us, it could be more like, what? It's a stormy night uh, and it's three o'clock in the morning and somebody's in breach labor 45 miles away uh, through the mangroves. <laughs> you know, uh, suddenly, uh, yeah, things get a little more difficult, a little more challenging. So you are the 911 to the communities that you serve, yeah. and you are the 911 to yourself. <laughs> yeah, that's a, it's definitely, it's, there's definitely a different sense when, you know, kind of when you are the 911 service. <laughs> yeah, and I, I want to talk about this because um, this, is, this is really your life's passion. This is the, your life's work at the moment is to go into these underserved coastal communities and be the, uh, the triage unit, you know, or, or, or the university hospital because you're treating all these different aspects of generalized medical care and I would probably say even some more highly specialized ones. When I say I practice general medicine, I mean I really practice general medicine because we're we're essentially the only primary care providers, you know, serving you know this more than 500 square mile rural area. There is a tiny hospital here in Bogus, but I mean they can't do surgery or you know uh, I mean it's essentially an urgent care clinic, you know, serving all of the medical needs supposedly for you know about seventy or eighty thousand people over a 500 square mile area. So, yeah, we, as I said, we see everything. Volunteers always used to, you know, always ask, and I used to try and answer. They would say things, especially medical volunteers, like, so what kinds of cases do you think we'll see? And uh, I used to actually try and answer that. Now I just say, listen, common things are common. So just like home, you see kids with respiratory disease and diarrhea and all of those, you know, all the heart disease, all the common illnesses. And then I said, and I just can't predict what other things we're going to see. All I know is that pretty much on every clinic we see stuff. You're just like, oh, my God, how did, what is that? Or how did that get that big? Or how are we going to, you know, get some kind of benefit or result for this person? You know, so. Well, what is it Sometimes like? Sometimes it can be challenging. But oh, I, 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 I don't reason, doubt uh, it. And that so brings me to the next question about what is it like for someone living in a developing country to go out and try to get medical care. You know, here we, we're jaded. It's very, very simple. You walk into that clinic or you call your doctor or you go to the hospital. It's not mm-hmm. like this for the people. Yeah, you, or you go to a hospital emergency room where it's actually illegal for them not to treat you. Right. You know, people do, when people in the U.S. talk about not having access to medical care, they don't really, most people in the U.S. do not really grasp what not having access to medical care really means. When people in the U.S. talk about that, they generally mean because it's expensive or because the emergency room is on the other side of town or their insurance won't cover, you know, this or that. Uh, but, I mean, what they're forgetting is that there's actually an emergency room there. You know, like that's the difference between access and no access. You know, uh, in the U.S., people with poor access, they're kind of disenfranchised from receiving health care for various reasons. In comparison to the kinds of disenfranchisement you, know, you find in the, you know, in the developing world, there is no comparison. You know, the, all things are relative. You know, the poorest people in Beverly Hills feel poor, even though they're, the poorest people in Beverly Hills are much, much, much wealthier than you know, a huge percentage of the rest of the world's population. In comparison to all their neighbors, they will feel poor. And uh, what, like, for, for example, very poor people in America, no matter how much they are suffering, often you know, would not think to realize is that things like having a second T-shirt 
for a pair of shoes that you can afford to wear every day, except just on Sunday when you're going to church, or that you carry in your hand as you walk barefoot to work and then put on before you go into work. You know, things like that are a luxury, a luxury item for most of the world's population. Hold so that thought right there, Dr. LeBrot. We are going to go to a break, and when we come back, I don't mean to cut you off, but I want to send oh, sorry, our sorry. listeners to floatingdoctors.com to learn more about what you are doing. And when we come back, I want to talk about the project in specific, what kind of diseases and problems you are encountering there, and get into more of the nitty-gritty, because what you're doing is truly remarkable and special and, u- and unique, and I want to make sure we let it be known. Here come the tunes. We know that life is tough and that happiness can and does live along with adversity. We'll be right back to explain how on Harvesting Happiness with Lisa Cypress Kamen on Toginet.com. Are you someone who leaps out of bed to greet the morning, amazed at your good fortune every hour of the day? Or are you someone like me who needs regular infusions of inspiration? I'm Meg Pierre, a photographer, travel writer, and creator of the website www.com viewfromthepeer.com, which focuses on the human quest to connect with self, others, and a sense of wonder. Every day, the site features a new beautiful image from my travels around the world, captioned by an uplifting quotation. This daily dose of inspiration is available free. Viewfromthepeer.com also presents monthly interviews with fascinating people I have met in my travels, who offer their personal stories and wisdom along with in-depth destination stories about cultural traditions from around the world. If your day could benefit from a quick change of scenery or attitude adjustment, I invite you to visit www.viewfromthepeer.com. Are you or do you know a returning U.S. military man or woman in need of restoring joy in their lives? Did you know that our nonprofit, Harvesting Happiness for Heroes, offers stigma-free combat trauma and post-deployment reintegration programming? Check us out at www.hh4heroes.org. That's HH, the number four, and heroes.org. Happiness is an inside job. Wear the message on T-shirts, baseball caps, sterling silver designer jewelry, and more. Please visit our online boutique at www.harvestinghappiness.com. Welcome back to Harvesting Happiness with Lisa Cypress Cayman on Toginet. The show dedicated to promoting happiness because happiness is a choice and happiness can be cultivated and harvested. Hence the name of the show. So let's get back to it. It's Harvesting Happiness on Toginet.com. And now, back to your host, Lisa Cypress Kamen. Welcome back, everyone. We're here on July 4th, 2012, celebrating not only Independence Day in America, but celebrating freedom in general, the freedom to choose and to um, take full responsibility for those choices that we make. And today's guest is Dr. Benjamin Labrat, who is the head of Floating 
Doctors. Floating Doctors uh, was founded by him and his sister, amongst others, and they are traveling through Panama, servicing underserved or communities that have no access to medical care. He's with us today from Panama. I don't know if we have him back on the line, but I will get a ping or two that we do. And um, he is here, but our sound may not be perfect, and that is just the nature of radio. Welcome back, Dr. Labrat. Ah, thanks, Lisa. I'll try and speak uh, particularly loudly and clearly to overcome the thousands of miles uh, of connection. Oh, yeah, but the connection's there. The, the miles doesn't matter. It's just the, uh, the, the, the darn Internet. <laughs> so let's talk a little bit about Floating Doctors. What prompted, well, we know what prompted you to start it, which is, which is your passion uh, to, to serve others. But talk about the project, and then we'll move on to the kinds of diseases that you see and the kinds of medical issues that you're treating. All right. I mean, well, our project, uh, I guess to summarize it really quickly as well, we're essentially a, a kind of a small mobile medical team. You know, we travel in, a, in an 83-foot ship uh, that we use to transport and house our volunteers and all our equipment. Uh, and uh, we run mobile clinics either for one day or for multiple days in communities, uh, either in the mountains or in coastal areas that are essentially difficult to reach uh, and have you know, little or no access to care. So many of the communities that we visit actually had never been visited by a doctor before, you know, ever. Even here in Panama, you know, we've entered communities where they're like, oh, so that's what a white person looks like, uh, and where they've never talked to a doctor before in their lives. So it definitely keeps us busy. Oh, I I would imagine you've got quite the lineup in some of these areas um, to treat conditions that the the, the local, I'm sure there is somebody within the communities where people go to him or her with medical problems, but they're lay people, correct? Well, lay people by what what we we would consider lay people, but some of the indigenous communities have uh, a curandero, which is a natural healer, a botanical botanical medical healer. And... uh, we actually have a project with a couple of the, you know, the botanical medicine practitioners trying to catalog uh, some of the plants and methods of preparation that they use to create some of their jungle medicines. Um, a couple of the plants and preparations that we've collected so far that are used by the indigenous for things like leishmaniasis, which is a horrible, ulcerating, uh, tropical parasite. Um, actually, we found that those plants were known to have anti-leishmaniasis properties. So in kind of our first pass at some of the jungle plants that are used for medicine, we may have gotten a couple of positive hits. So one of our little side projects, uh, but, you know, I'm watching the Nobe culture change, the Nobe indigenous culture change and actually be lost literally in front of my eyes. So anything that we can do to try and help preserve some of the, you know, the cultural arts, uh, especially the medical cultural arts, you know, is definitely within our purview. Well, you know, um, it takes me off point for a second, but something that is very important, and that is how your own practice of the art of medicine has been influenced and shifted by what you have seen through the, the, the Coranderas. Sure. Well, one thing that's really, uh, one thing that's interesting about the practice down here, and especially the practice with the Coranderos, <clears throat> we actually have quite a good working relationship with the Coranderos, which... Sometimes, you know, visiting physicians do not. You know, there can sometimes be some patronizing, even if it's not meant. But essentially, we have mutual professional respect. They're the existing doctors in the community, and whereas we practice different medicine, um, I would say we use a different pharmacy, but we actually practice the same kind of medicine. The Coranderos uh, tend to include a strong kind of emotional or spiritual content into their healing. 
Um, so, you know, I've really had a great opportunity, uh, you know, to work with some extraordinary doctors and natural healers who are from Honduras and Panama, you know, and Haiti, you know, kind of other developing nations. And invariably, um, they, are in, they are amazing clinical practitioners. When you find really good doctors down in the developing world, they tend to be amazing clinical doctors, the kind of doctors who can sit down and examine a patient and without necessarily having to resort to the laboratory or imaging, can come up with a diagnosis and have that diagnosis be correct. And that is where the skill of medicine becomes an art, where through essentially a conversation with a patient and by putting your hands on the patient and just talking to them and listening to them, you're able to diagnose disease. And that was actually the basis of much of my training in Ireland, where the emphasis of medical training was on what we call classical diagnostics, you know, what doctors have been doing for thousands of years, talking to the patient, listening to the patient, putting your hands on the patient, and diagnosing. So it's a kind of, uh, it's a kind of medicine that, for various reasons in the U.S., has gone into significant decline over the past 20 or 30 years. And most people who've been to doctors kind of in the U.S. often would not, you know, kind of recall having, like, very thorough exams or the doctors being able to spend very much time talking to them, partially because of enormous mountains of documentation and huge patient loads, various reasons. But the end result is that uh, there's, I believe that there's a separation happening between American patients um, and American healthcare. You know, and I think a lot of American patients kind of feel that, too. Um, and that's one thing I love about practicing this kind of medicine. We call it, you know, you know patients, not paperwork. We maintain patient records, you know, for all of our patients, especially because we do follow-up care. Um, but our documentation is essentially two sheets of paper, which contain all the relevant information and treatment history for our patients. You know, and that's, you know, the amount of documentation that we have to do is so much less. It's appropriate, but it's still so much less than what's required in the U.S. that that allows us to spend way more time actually working and talking with our patients. Which, you know, talk about freedom. I mean, the, 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 the con controls that are in place here for what, what needs to be done as part of protocol is very different from what you are doing, which in a sense is very self-regulated. You understand the need to record what is necessary to serve the patient, but you're not bogged down by delivering reports. You're delivering the care. Correct. I mean, we work with the ministries of health down here, and most of the areas that we work in, Zero health data, zero real health data has ever been collected. Any numbers that you see for the areas that we work on any, like, international uh, kind of health sites or anything like that are essentially extrapolations or wild guesses. Sometimes that's admitted in that literature, and sometimes, you know, it's not really mentioned. But, uh, you know, every community is so highly individualized by microclimates, microcultural differences. You know, why the two communities three miles apart that look identical, you know, one has 50 cases of leishmaniasis, the other has none, you know. So we collect very, you know, you know fairly detailed data um, and share that with the Ministry of Health. And the reason it's important, you have to have some information, an appropriate amount, not only so that you can do follow-up care, but also so that in the areas where there is no health information, you have some idea of what is actually going on while you're working there. And then better yet, that data that's collected in an ongoing fashion allows you to do surveillance of your own interventions. Is the rate of parasite infestation dropping after three or four visits? Or is it staying the same? And if it's staying the same, obviously your intervention isn't working and you have to think of something else. So it's a very valuable tool, not only for us to plan and to surveil our own interventions, but the Ministry of Health is often extraordinarily happy to have that data, which 
is very difficult to gather any other way. Not only does it require getting out there uh, to these really remote and difficult to access locations, it also requires you know, an extraordinary trust in the community. Because indigenous communities around the world tend to be suspicious when foreigners come up and you know, kind of show up and start asking lots of personal questions and you know, questions about, oh, how many people live here? Because for like 500 years, pretty much every interaction they've had with outside groups has been along the lines of, hey, I really like your land. You should move off of it. Yeah, yeah. So the, build, you know, the building of trust uh, is also a huge part of what we do. You know, many of them who've acted. Oh, sorry. Go ahead. Go ahead. No, 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 no. I, I, I could go on forever talking about you know the the the, the nature of of also the the studying and the um, surveying that you're doing. But I want to also let people know how you actually staff the boat, how you are funded, because this is an important. This doesn't happen by magic. You know, the, uh, you you work on a volunteer system. Um, you've got mm-hmm. a couple of uh, wonderful scholarship opportunities that I wanted to put out there, and also you operate through donations, through charitable contributions from everyday people, that it doesn't take, it doesn't take a, a lot of money from one person. It takes a little bit from a lot of people to, to do what you do. Uh, exactly. I wish I could say that we had either won the lottery, that I was independently very, very wealthy, or that we had you know, a single huge government or, or agency grant, but we do not have any of those things. Our entire project was born happened and continues to happen and grow, essentially because thousands of people literally around the world have put their hands under our project, you know, and helped it stay afloat and keep it moving forward. You know, it's, uh, you know, you know, to get, uh, you know, sometimes $10, you know, uh, from someone for whom $10 is a lot of money to donate, you know, means actually much more to me than, uh, you know, $1,000 from whom, you know, from someone, that which still means something to me, but, when, you know, a lot of people I notice often seem to give, they often seem to give what they can, and sometimes I feel like more than they can, even when it's not a lot. And like, sometimes from very poor countries, you know, uh, we get online donations, uh, you know, which is, I don't know, people who have been on the end of help understand the value of helping. And we find, I find that we get a lot of our support, uh, from kind of people who are maybe not in imminent threat and danger, but have at least at one time kind of been in a position where a helping hand was outstretched and it made, the, you know, it made a huge difference in their lives. So, you know, $5 here, $10 here, some contributions from our volunteers, uh, and I did. Uh, we continue. Mostly, um, as you say, if everybody does a little, you know, if everybody does a little, suddenly a mountain is moved. And that's what I love about the work that you're doing. And um, people can go to floatingdoctors.com. We are going to go to a break, so I do invite people to check out floatingdoctors.com. And on the website, Dr. Lebrat and his uh, colleagues and his sister, and I want to get into a little bit of conversation about your sister when we come back, have a unique thing where you can donate. You can set yourself up to even donate $5 a month. And it is that concept mm-hmm. of yeah. you know taking a little of, bit. Uh, yeah, the price of a Starbucks coffee once a month can literally mean that, you know, that means that we can keep going and it means sometimes the difference that someone, you know, someone lives or dies. And that's, I mean, it, just, um, it doesn't take much. It just it takes does. that much from enough people. And uh, we are going to go to a break, but I wanted to let you know when my children come home from school today, I am going to take them onto your site and we are going to set it up so we can contribute in this monthly way because I think this is an incredible program. Here come the tunes. We'll be right back.
We know that life is tough and that happiness can and does live along with adversity. We'll be right back to explain how on Harvesting Happiness with Lisa Cypress Kamen on Toginet.com. Like what you hear on Harvesting Happiness Talk Radio? Subscribe to us on iTunes and get your weekly dose of joy downloaded free and easily to your computer or portable device. That's Harvesting Happiness Talk Radio on iTunes. likes to win, enter our weekly contests at Harvesting Happiness on Facebook, where we give away our guests books, music, film, and products each week. In addition, we also do great Harvesting Happiness giveaways like free coaching sessions with Lisa Cypress Kamen, Lisa's Books, Happiness First Aid Kits, H-Factor Where Is Your Heart documentary film, Happiness is an inside job products, including the Sterling Silver Infinity Bracelet that benefit Harvesting Happiness for Heroes, a nonprofit whose mission is to assist our returning military personnel and their loved ones challenged by combat trauma and other post-deployment reintegration issues. Join us at Harvesting Happiness on Facebook. Nothing gives happiness like a free gift. Lisa Cypress Kamen has made her first ebook, Got Happiness Now? Eight Keys to Unlocking a Joyful Life, available at no cost to everyone. Unwrap your complimentary copy now by visiting www.harvestinghappinesstalkradio.com. Welcome back to Harvesting Happiness with Lisa Cypress Cayman on Toginet. The show dedicated to promoting happiness because happiness is a choice and happiness can be cultivated and harvested. Hence the name of the show. So let's get back to it. It's Harvesting Happiness on Toginet.com. And now, back to your host, Lisa Cypress Cayman. Welcome back, everyone. If you're just joining us now for our July 4th celebration of not only the American Independence Day, but freedom in general. Um, I'm here today with Dr. Benjamin Labrat of Floating Doctors. He is traveling on a rather large vessel down uh, off the coast of Panama and servicing with his team and his sister um, communities that do not necessarily have uh, traditional medical care. Sometimes people have not seen a traditional doctor and, and oftentimes have not seen a Caucasian ever. And I, I, we're exploring this concept of freedom, not how it only applies to us in North American culture and society, but internally and through the choices that we make and the consequences that we accept. Because as we all know, we have the absolute freedom to be happy or the liberty to be miserable. Dr. Labrat, before the break, we were talking about the kinds of treatment that you're giving, about how Floating Doctors runs, and you've got a very unique scholarship uh, offer that um, I'd like to put out there to our community and see if we can help stimulate some interest in coming to work with you. Ah, thanks, Lisa. Um, 
earlier we were talking about uh, kind of what the access to health care means, and I was explaining how many people in the U.S. do not recognize the difference between lack of access in the U.S. and lack of access, access elsewhere. So often the two things that people might say would be, A, why don't you do this in the U.S. for people who you know, have no access to care? The answer is that the application and licensing process would cost many, many times more than my entire annual budget. Uh, second, I always say I am affecting change in the U.S. You know, because I, I, it is hard for me to believe that the experience of coming down and participating in this kind of medicine um, is a bad thing to take back to your practice in the U.S., both because you've seen a lot of different tropical diseases that are often misdiagnosed in the U.S. when they occur, which is, and, and they occur with increasing frequency. And also, most doctors and most student doctors who come and participate with us usually end up saying something like, thank you for making me feel like a real doctor for the first time, you know, or this is what I always imagined practicing medicine would be like. You know, it's very like that traditional kind of what you believe when you are a little kid and you want to grow up and work in healthcare. And, you know, we do a lot of house calls, you know, you're taking the black bag, you're going into communities and you are, you learn as one of my volunteers recently just said, here you learn what it means to say, I am your doctor. And I believe that that's a fairly valuable thing you know, to be able to take back uh, into the U.S. So we have a scholarship opportunity from the Danford Foundation uh, in the Bay Area in Redwood City. The Danford Foundation Scholarship allows 15 one-month, uh, it supports 15 one-month volunteer positions with us. So we have about, had about four or five student nurses uh, and clinicians from that area. But the scholarship's goal is to provide physicians and clinicians and health workers or student health workers in the Bay Area and Redwood City area with this experience to improve the standard of care and uh, the tropical medicine skill in the health practitioners in those areas. So this is the first scholarship we've had that's actually a direct kind of training grant for clinicians. And essentially it means that health workers from the Redwood City or the Bay Area um, or student health workers who would like to participate in our mission all just have to get a plane ticket down here and everything else is totally taken care of uh, for up to an entire month of working with us and participating in our activities and living on board Southern Wind. That's is incredible. And you have a separate email address for this program, and I want to put that out there for our listeners. If you are from the Bay Area or Redwood City area, you are a uh, health worker and you are interested in joining Dr. Lebrot and his team at Floating Doctors, you can go to Floating Doctors Volunteers at gmail.com. Again, again, that's floating doctors, volunteers at gmail.com. Let's move on to something very interesting in the dynamic uh, that, that's going on on the boat, and that is your work with your sister. Uh-huh. I, am, I, always, uh, I always joke that I am about as far from a midlife crisis as a 36-year-old man can possibly be. <laughs> um, I, I, uh, after very much blood, sweat, and tears, literally all three. I've watched my life stream kind of unfold before my eyes and go places that I never even imagined. Um, but one of the greatest gifts of this entire project for me personally has been able to do this with my sister. There's just she and I, um, and we've always been very close. But I trained in Ireland uh, and, I, and worked in the hospitals in Ireland, so I was gone for essentially seven years um, for my sister age, you know, like 20, 21 to like 26, 27. And that's a very formative period, you know, to miss kind of in someone's life. So when I got back, 
I knew my sister, but I also, you know, she was no longer like a 20-year-old girl. She was now a 26-year-old woman, you know, uh, a po- you know, a powerful kind of sales rep kind of working uh, in the Hollywood beverage industry. And uh, she came out to help me in Florida, you know, when we started to do the rebuild on our donated vessel. And uh, she came out to help me for three weeks. because I called her. I was like, Sky, I need your help. You're an amazing manager of people, and I need someone down here who can do that. So she came out to Florida to help me for three weeks, and that was like uh, three years ago. Wow. <laughs> and uh, I really got to, it was, you know, the people that have been involved in this for a long time, you know, I know as well as anyone I know on earth because, I mean, you can't measure objective time. It's like 12 years worth of normal experiences packed into two years, you know. I mean, you know, 12 years worth of near-death experiences, for example, packed into two years, you know, things like that. So you share a lot. And, uh, you know, we got, you know, I managed to get to know my sister all over again. And it's amazing how the people that you that you know and already admire can still continue to impress you. Well, you know, you, you say something very interesting about, you know, the, that life and death uh, experience being com- compacted and compressed into a shortened period of time. And I think what I hear when you describe your life and the experiences and the passion with which you're living, that it is so, so mindful that your appreciation of life, you know, how precious it is, is that heightened awareness is because of your ability to be in the moment. The ability to be in the moment is because you are serving in this way in these communities that where there's the absence of reporting back to a system, but you do have a system. You know, it's all very uh, intertwined. I don't know if I'm even making sense with what I'm trying to say. But, <laughs> but there, there is something, there's a thread with what you're doing that is about you're living your life on purpose, serving other people, and sort of, I, I, I liken it to sort of sucking the marrow out of, out of living, mm-hmm. you know, taking, yep. taking everything that you can, never taking any of these moments for granted. I guess that's what I'm trying to say. Yep, I just, I mean, I tell volunteers, I go, listen, all I can tell you is that it's going to be an adventure during which time there's going to be a moment at which your, your presence may mean a huge change in somebody's life forever. Um, and you're going to, you know, you're going to sleep well. Mm. You know, it's, a, it's amazingly rewarding, amazingly rewarding. And it is true, uh, you know, a lot of stuff does pile up. So many new things happen kind of day by day, you know, but uh, I just, I never know what will happen. Every time I think I've seen it all, you know, so, you know, things get quiet for a few hours. You know, maybe we're 500 miles. Here's an actual story. We're 500 miles offshore in Nicaragua on our way to Panama from Haiti. And it's been still mirror flat for three days. You know, and you're just in a straight line, chugging along, chugging along. Suddenly, one of the fishing rods that you just have casually out the back, hoping to catch a small tuna or something like that, goes off. Um, I'm at the wheel. I hear the rod go off, and I turn around, you know, just in time to see this gigantic whale shark slowly rise out of the featureless ocean a few feet behind our stern, you know, coming up to about eight or ten feet, and then slowly sliding vertically back down into the water and disappearing into a featureless ocean. You know, and you're just like, well, that's something you don't see every day. (laughs) Or you're you're at the top of a mountain somewhere in the Panamanian jungle, treating a kid for a mild respiratory infection, and somebody comes up and says, 
we need a doctor. Some, you know, a kid's chopped his toe with a machete, you know, further up the mountain, and you send a medical team up there, uh, not knowing what they're going to find, and they find a kid who's chopped his toes off with a machete, and on the spot, you have to somehow anesthetize it and complete, you know, the amputation and sew it back together and make sure it doesn't get infected. You just, it's, you know, it's extraordinary, both the kind of actual, kind of physically and mentally and, you know, intellectually challenging and exciting things that happen, but the incredible human connections, you know, that people experience. You know, when the volunteers or when we experience connections, you know, with a particular patient or with someone here who's helping us, so, you know, you get to witness enormous acts of courage and heroism and kindness and, uh, you know, we see a lot of things that one would think might make us lose faith kind of uh, in people you know, and in humanity, but it's in fact actually the opposite. And we see all of those things, but we see so many, we see so many small heroisms, <clears throat> you know, and sometimes large heroisms um, that uh, it really does kind of give you hope that, you know, no matter how bad things may seem to be, uh, no matter how many problems, you know, there could be, as long as there are good people in the world, you know, there is more than just hope, like there's a promise. You know, with that, I want to take a moment because you are a very humble man, Dr. Labrat, and I want to also toot your horn a little bit that you have been nominated by CNN as a Hero of the Year. And uh, there are videos on your website. There are videos actually all over the Internet. So our listeners can go and see that piece and see visually what you are doing. And I think what resonates for me with what you've just shared is the fact that there aren't even six degrees of separation, maybe two. Yeah, there are not many. It's amazing. <laughs> you know? uh, it's amazing how many random people you meet in a rural community in Honduras who you actually somehow have some kind of connection to. And now at the end of two years, the connections that we've formed in those two years, you know, uh, it's, it's extraordinary. You know, the, the world, uh, the way the world interacts is changing so fast and becoming so connected. Uh, you know, it's, it's both exciting and scary. But I, you know, it, I do kind of enjoy uh, being Facebook friends with, you know, the half Haitian, half Lebanese, one-eyed kind of local character in Haiti, you know, that uh, gave us 200 gallons of diesel uh, of, I don't know where it came from and I don't care, but he gave us 200 gallons of, he, he gave us 200 gallons of diesel, which is a lot in Haiti. That's a lot of, you know, that's a big something to give somebody on it's behalf of all you do for Haiti. Ah, ha, ha, ha. You know, Dr. Lebrot, we're you, going to you know, break. We're uh -huh. coming right back. Here come the tunes. Oh, sorry. <laughs> that's okay. <laughs> Where is my heart? Where is my heart? We know that life is tough and that happiness can and does live along with adversity. We'll be right back to explain how on Harvesting Happiness with Lisa Cypress Kamen on toginet.com. Do you like Lisa's take on happiness, well-being, and human flourishing? Join us this spring as Harvesting Happiness launches online classroom programming where Lisa Cypress Kamen will offer her workshop series across the globe and from the comfort of wherever you are. Visit harvestinghappiness.com for more details. Part of the Grateful Good. 
Grateful Nation brings together patients, families, friends, and staff of Beth Israel Deaconess Medical Center to support the quality care and groundbreaking research at the Medical Center. Through new and traditional media, members of Grateful Nation share experiences, thank our caregivers and researchers, participate in sweepstakes, and gather to sponsor and host events and much more. Being grateful inspires others to be grateful as well. Isn't it time we jumpstart some perpetual gratitude? Visit Grateful Nation online to find out more at www.gratefulnation.org. Have a grateful day. Welcome back to Harvesting Happiness with Lisa Cypress Cayman on Toginet. The show dedicated to promoting happiness because happiness is a choice and happiness can be cultivated and harvested. Hence the name of the show. So let's get back to it. It's Harvesting Happiness on Toginet.com. And now, back to your host, Lisa Cypress Cayman. Welcome back, everyone. We are in the last stretch of a show that has just blown by in celebration of American Independence Day, but more importantly, the celebration of freedom and the choices that we make. We're here today with Dr. Benjamin Labrat of Floating Doctors, who is down in Panama today. He is um, uh, the head of an organization that delivers medical care to uh, people in areas that don't normally receive more westernized kind of medical care. And we're talking about sort of the six degrees of separation that don't exist when you are delivering the very, very human art of medicine, which Dr. Labrat and his team that includes his sister um, have been doing for the last few years. Let's talk for a minute, Ben, about the areas that you have covered on your tour of duty, so to speak. Where have you been? Years ago, uh, when we first set sail, it was uh, about uh, two and a half months after the earthquake had struck Haiti. So our first mission was that we carried 20,000 pounds of medical supplies uh, and building materials to Petiwag, the fourth largest city in Haiti, where we found it was probably devastated. Uh, you know, as you can imagine, it was, the, it was the epicenter of the second large aftershock. And uh, we built two schools. Uh, we saw about 2,500 patients. We stayed on station there for uh, about, about three months. Uh, we conducted 25 mobile clinics in the mountains uh, in the areas. We repaired and restocked a local clinic that we partnered with. And that was essentially, you know, that was the proving ground for our project. We figured we'd start off with something easy, so we'd go to Haiti after the earthquake. <laughs> um, it was, uh, that was, uh, that was a tough, that, Haiti's a tough one. In Haiti, uh, you cannot, or at least I feel like you cannot go with the idea of, like, we're going to help Haiti. Haiti is so catastrophic that uh, that's a fairly grandiose uh, and arrogant mission. But you can go to help many individual Haitians, you know, as individuals, and that is possible. So we worked there for about three months. Uh, then we uh, voyaged to Honduras, where we worked for about nine months uh, in the Bay Islands, uh, we opened a small clinic on the east end of uh, on the east end of Roatan Island, serving a you know, really underserved uh, kind of rough neighborhood. Treated a lot of gunshot wounds there, and learned uh, the important question to ask in developing world: gunshot wounds is never ask who shot you, just 
treat the bullet wounds uh, and, you know, get them through the night. Um, we saw a lot of drug crime there. It was really sad. And, and we saw a lot of child prostitution there. Um, the people kind of come on the cruise ships, you know, and it's all arranged. They do it online. They get picked up and they can have their way with it. It was really, that was a very difficult location. Wow. Um, then we, uh, we went back to Haiti after the cholera epidemic. Uh, we delivered 7,500 bags of IV fluid to the Capitation Health Network, uh, and uh, conducted mobile clinics along a 30-mile stretch of the northern Haitian coast. Uh, we also checked back in on the south with uh, the communities that we'd worked in previously. Then uh, we journeyed to Panama, uh, where we've been for last year. And we're in the middle of kind of setting up a permanent clinic here in Panama, so that even when Southern Wind is not here, there'll be a volunteer base uh, and a central location from which mobile clinics and health services will still be able to be provided over this whole area. Wow. I'd like to read something, if I may, that you actually wrote. Um, and it, 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 <laughs> it's, not, it's not long, but it really uh, touched my heart. Go ahead, it's really the essence of what we're, we're talking about today. Um, it says, to Los Angeles with all my love and heart. Um, oh, my, sis- my sister wrote this, but I think I know what you're going to read. It's beautiful, and it, it, and it beautiful. really captures. Mm-hmm. It captures the essence. Uh, uh, sky, sky Blue. I, and, and that's your mm-hmm. sister, Sky Blue? Mm-hmm. Yes, okay, so this is what she wrote. I believe everything that we do in this life has a cost and a benefit associated with it. At times, the cost that you pay for the decision you have made far outweighs any benefit you may gain while the profit you get from another totally justifies the negatives. A cynic would say I view everything through a cost analysis in my life, and in many ways I believe that is a true statement. On this stormy day in Panama, with inches of drenching rain replenishing the jungle around me, I find myself thinking of what prices I have paid, both good and bad, for the decisions I must call my own. That touches me, and that is the yep. essence of what you do. Freedom. Yep. Hmm? Freedom. That's freedom. That is freedom. And, as it, it, and, it, and it turns out that if you grasp it with both hands, it's the most beautiful thing to possess, uh, that I've ever experienced. Yeah. There's a, you know, Ray Bradbury passed away, uh, I think the day before yesterday. Um, it was an author I always greatly admired, uh, both for his science fiction, but particularly for books like Dandelion Wine and some of his philosophies. And uh, he had a great quote. He said, if we listened to our intellect, we'd never have a love affair. We'd never have a friendship. And we'd never go in business because we'd be cynical. It's going to go wrong. Or he's going to hurt me, or I've had a couple of bad love affairs, so therefore, well, that's nonsense. You're going to miss life. You've got to jump off the cliff all the time and build your wings on the way down. And uh, I always love that, you know, uh, because so much of what we do, when you have freedom, so much of what you do is a leap of faith, you know, a step you know, out over the abyss in the hope that you'll either somehow find firm ground under you or that if you fall, You'll grow. You'll learn to build wings on the way down. Yes, and it, it, it is. And some, I'm sorry. No, go and ahead. Sometimes it. Oh, sorry. <laughs> sometimes and sometimes it requires falling to learn that you can fly. How true that is, Doctor Lebrot. And I, I want to recap a couple of things here. You are also going to be coming back to the United States 
On December mm-hmm. 2nd, 2012, we are having mm-hmm. our TEDx Malibu event. This is our second event um, with TEDx, and the theme this year is Living Out Loud, which I think you are doing with grace and aplomb. And you'll be sharing with us during that event some of your experiences of this concept of living, you know, bodaciously and audaciously loudly, which is what this is all about, you know? Uh, that's something I'm really looking forward to the TED Talk uh, because I'm going to try and share our experiences in the context of what what it means for health to live out loud, you know, like what that means for being healthy uh, and you know having a a long and healthy life. So. And uh, and I know that you'll do it beautifully because you are such an eloquent speaker and, and writer and 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 poet. I dare say, you know, poet on the water and. <laughs> Um, and let's talk a little bit about the CNN Hero of the Year Award. Um, I I don't know a whole lot about this program. When we were talking about it on the break, do people vote for it? Does CNN choose? But those awards are going to take place on November 12th. And uh, I sure hope that I am uh, applauding you because uh, you do deserve recognition for all the wonderful things that you're doing on behalf of humanity. You know, it's not ju- it's not... Uh, uh, just for Americans or or people of uh, Central and South America. I mean, it's really for humanity. You're setting an example of this concept of living loud and living fully and with presence and mindfulness and acceptance of consequences and and your own self mastery. And it's it's a very cool thing. Oh, thank you. Um, it is it, that is it's sort of embarrassing, but <laughs> but thank you. Um, the reason I say it's a little bit embarrassing is, you know, like I actually, you know, I do recognize, you know, sometimes, I mean, sometimes I get to see, you know, the results of the kindnesses that happen, but, you know, I just, it's so much of what happens is because of the people that come and participate and the people that support, uh, it goes back to that thousand hands image, you know, and there was a, again, a Robert Kennedy speech, uh, this is actually what, of all the things that he said, does it be carved in stone on his grave? He said, it is from the numberless diverse acts of courage and belief that human history is shaped. Each time a man stands up for an ideal or acts to improve the lot of others or strikes out against injustice, he sends forth a tiny ripple of hope and crossing each other from a million different centers of energy and daring, these ripples build a current that can sweep down the mightiest walls of oppression and resistance. And uh, it echoes you know, what uh, I always feel when I watch my volunteers doing a clinic, or I watch them, you know, with patients, or watch them intervening in someone's health. You know, people really applauded, uh, you know, Colonel Winters, you know, who commanded Easy Company, uh, which was the subject of that series, Band of Brothers, in World War II. And he used to say, you know, his, his, one of his grandkids had asked him once, Granddad, were you a hero in the war? And he said, no, but I served in a company of heroes. And that's really, you know, that's really how I feel, it's, you know, I'm privileged to be in a position where I get to witness some of the best parts of humanity in action day after day after day. Wow. And that's the truth. I mean, that is really the truth that when, uh, that when we serve and when we serve really from the heart, uh, the impact that we can have in even just our small circles of influence is immeasurable it is uplifting, and it elevates not only the people that we serve, but ourselves. And I think 
that's what I find so magnificent about service work. You know, the work that we do at Harvesting Happiness for Heroes with combat trauma uh, veterans and the work that you're doing down south. It's, it's all about uplifting, about helping to make the world be a better place. And it's lofty. But it's, it, but it's truth, it's fact, that, that that element of kindness, of being able to serve from the heart, is probably almost more important than the other stuff. Uh, that's, the, that's the first part of medicine. You know, that's the first part of, and not just of medicine, it's the first part of living. You know, uh, you, my mom, when I was a teacher, gave me the best advice. She said, listen, when those kids come in, when they close the door, you never know what they're leaving behind in the car or at home. You just don't know. And there are times in everyone's life when the lightest touch will either heal or wither someone forever. And you're not usually privileged to know when those moments are. So you have to behave as though every moment were one of those moments. And we, sometimes, I'm if you're sorry, lucky, years later, you find out. Oh, Dr. LeBrot, we are going to have you back in a few months. We'll, okay. we'll coincide <laughs> with um, CNN Heroes or TEDx oh, or both. But here are a few thoughts before we park, because I want to make sure we give the contact information as well. Oh, and those you. are that happiness is not a destination. It cannot be bought, sold, or traded. And happiness will never invite you to the party. Happiness simply comes down to a choice to show up each and every day in the world with passion, purpose, place, and meaning. Thanks for joining us on Harvesting Happiness Talk Radio. This is Lisa Cypress-Kamen and Dr. Benjamin Lebrot of Floating Doctors wishing you kind thoughts, kinder words, and the kindest of actions. And remember that happiness is an inside job. Happiness is your inside job. To learn more about Dr. Benjamin Lebrot and his work, go to floatingdoctors.com. Give, give generously, give often. And if you know of a health practitioner in the Bay Area or Redwood City area that might be interested in volunteering, send them to floatingdoctorsvolunteers at Gmail and sign up for the scholarship program that's going on. And we we wish you, Dr. LeBrat, and your team and your sister the very best of everything, safe, safe seas, safe skies, and we will see you soon. Thank you for being a part of Harvesting Happiness with Lisa Cypress-Kamen. We'll do this again next Wednesday morning at 10, 11 Central here on Togedash.